If you have your Bibles, open them to James chapter 5, and let me read these last two verses of this wonderful book. I hope that uh, the book of James has been a blessing to you. It has certainly has to me. Um, I can't remember enjoying a study more than I have this one. It has just really been great for me personally, and I hope it has been as well for you. In the book of James, uh, these last few verses, let's read them together, uh, 19 and 20 of chapter 5. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, let them know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. You know, a little over a hundred years ago, uh, there was a genocide in Armenia. Now, I don't know, maybe you haven't looked at a map, but Armenia is in the eastern portion of Turkey, and uh, it's almost directly ab- above uh, the Holy Land. And in that genocide, uh, most of the, I think, over a million and a half, maybe more, people that were killed, the majority of them were Christians, and they were killed by the Ottoman Turks uh, in a a racial purge, a religious purge. Uh, And that prompted many people, because the violence spilled out of Armenia, it went throughout the region, as you can imagine, and during that time, my family lived in what is now Lebanon or southern Syria. And as the violence spilled out, multitudes of people began leaving. Now, this is the story for many of you, uh, whether you're Irish and you left Ireland during the potato famine or whether your family was, uh, uh, can trace their roots back to uh, uh, perhaps the nonconformists who left England and came, the pilgrims and the Puritans and those people. Uh, perhaps you have family, many of whom were in Mexico. And during the many revolutions that Mexico suffered, people fled uh, those places in order to find uh, freedom and economic opportunity and a better place uh, for their families. So I want to ask you uh, this morning just to uh, do a thought experiment with me for a moment. Why are you here today in this building right now? What are you, why are you here? Uh, and I think if you take a moment and think about it, you will look back and be able to find either someone or some group of people that made decisions that deeply affected you that led you to be where you are today, that shared their life or their hopes or their dreams, uh, like my great-grandfather. He was a 15-year-old boy and left on his own with nobody, came to the United States, didn't speak any English, and he was looking for freedom. He didn't want to get uh, uh, killed. His family, our family was Christian. And uh, so they were under threat by the Ottoman Turks, and uh, they fled by the thousands, by perhaps millions, and came to this country. And his decision 
affected my life today. And someone, somewhere, is the reason why you're here at Christ the King. That could have been something as, as convoluted as you typed into Google search the words John Calvin and up pop Christ the King because that's us. So you type in John Calvin, up we come, and you come here. Will somebody put the links together uh, to bring you here for that reason? Now, that's a silly example, but think about your journey to Jesus Christ. How did you get there? Maybe you're a young child, and you were raised in a Christian home, and your parents were careful to bring you to church and to inculcate into your life the truth of the gospel. And you never knew a day that Jesus was not king in your heart. Well, you're here today because of your godly parents and many other factors, perhaps. Maybe someone shared the gospel, like uh, for me, uh, a friend in high school handed me a, a... I was a drunk in high school. I was an alcoholic. I, I, by the time I, I was ready to go to college, I was trying to get off of alcohol. I wasn't trying to go to college and party. Uh, I wanted to sober up. And somebody gave me a, a pamphlet uh, of the Four Spiritual Laws by Campus Crusade. And, and uh, I chose to receive Christ in my heart, as explained in the pamphlet, and and that became my journey and my start to, Christ, to the Christian faith. What brought you? Why are you here? Someone, somewhere, reached out into your life. And I would argue that throughout your life, a series of events has continued to bring you or maybe kept you in church. Sometimes good and sometimes not so good. But you're here today because someone reached out and invested something in your life. And uh, James is saying, if a sinner, if you look out around you and you see people that are enslaved to sin, that it is our responsibility to go out and rescue them because from the very beginning of his letter until the end, he has described many, many things that can knock us off track, that can take us out of our normal life, like COVID, or like the economic collapse, or like racism, or poverty, or whatever, what have you. Peace uh, is elusive, and unrest is generally very much a part of our lives. So at the end of this letter, James closes it by saying, Put your your radar up. Look around. What are you looking at? You're looking at a world that is truly broken. And many that are in the church get tripped up. They find themselves getting knocked off track, and they need someone to come back and rescue you. And he says pointedly, if any of you wander away. He's talking to Christians. You know, Christianity is not this this uh, climb up into the stratosphere. It's not just a, a wonderful shot up in, there's no rocky road, there's no dips, no, no twists, no turns. No, it is an unbelievably crazy journey of ups and downs and sideways and, and sin and goodness and glory and suffering and blessing all mixed up. 
That's Christianity. And if you broaden your thinking a little bit, that is life in general. That is human life on this planet in, in, in all the reality that we know. Now, I have talked to many people, and people say, why did God create a world like that? I don't have an answer for that. Nobody does. But that is the world you live in. You can complain about it and say, I wish he'd have made the world like Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Uh, and by the way, he did, and we trashed the earth. So to, to blame him, I don't know why people do that, but there are reasons that we can talk about maybe in our next sermon series. The idea is that you're here today because God sent someone into your life to bring you to him. And he's calling each and every one of us to do that, and that's what these verses are about. We've looked the last few weeks, a summary of of, uh, the book of James was about patient endurance, and the first week we talked about an eternal perspective. Last week we talked about patient endurance and our prayers, how we're to communicate with God and others through prayer and help others through our prayers. And today I'm just going to talk about patient endurance and our compassion how we are charged by James and really the entire scripture to go out and reclaim, to redeem, and to restore the world, the lost, the least, and the last. And if you're a Christian, if you're here today, you must know that that is you. Least, last, and lost. If that's not you, you say, well, I'm not, I'm not that bad. I, you know, I try to do my best. And you go on. You have not arrived at Christianity yet. You're, you're doing good. You're in religion. You're, you're in some sort of uh, metaphysical world of, of uh, religion. But you're not at Christianity. Christianity says we are lost. And we need a Savior. We need someone to come and save us. And God could just come down and save us just, you know, with a lightning bolt. But he chooses instead to do it through this more organic way of people sharing their lives with other people. Parents with children, friends, relatives, even people you don't know. So it's all of that. Our compassion. James describes in his letter many, many pitfalls that cause us to wander, wander away from the truth. Now, if the truth is just a list of propositions, this starts to get a little bit hollow. But if the truth is something else besides just a list of propositions, then you can start to see why he uses the metaphor of wandering. Wandering is a strong theme in Scripture. Verse 19 says, If anyone among you wanders from the truth... Someone needs to bring them back. So this idea of wandering is a powerful theme in Scripture. Think with me for a moment about why you even have a Bible. Why do you have a Bible? The only reason that you have a Bible in your lap or maybe at your home or whatever, the only reason is because of what happened in chapter 3 in Genesis. The rest of the Bible is written because of what happened in chapter 3. There would be no Bible if chapter 3 was not uh, an historical event. 
So your Bible is there because of what happened in chapter 3. And what happened in chapter 3 is Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They sinned against God and they were cast out of the garden into the wilderness. They began wandering. And that theme of wandering never ends until Revelation 21 when we are gathered together in the holy city New Jerusalem comes down and the people of God are regathered together in this earthly temple. It's a magnificent story. So you have Abraham. He's out in Ur of the Chaldees. He's out in the, the wandering, in the wilderness, and God brings him to the promised land, tells him, look around you, everything you see, I will give you and your descendants. And of course he does And the descendants leave the land and they wander back out into the wilderness of Egypt. And then God rescues them in Egypt and he takes them out into uh, the promised land and they refuse to go in. So he takes them back out into the wilderness. Then he brings the people back into the promised land. And then they go back into the wilderness in the exile after the destruction of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar. And he brings them back into the promised land after the exile. And then the first thing that happens to your Savior and my Savior after he is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit is that he goes into the wilderness. He wanders in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. This theme of wandering is incredibly powerful. We live in exile. We live right now in the wilderness. There are tests. James has already told us. Listen, there are tests and trials. We are lacking wisdom. We need wisdom. He says, ask for wisdom. If you don't have a lot of doubts, you may not be a Christian. Christians have doubts and wrestle with doubt as much as anyone else, maybe more. To deny doubt is to, is to take faith out of the equation and put something else in its place. Think about that. Doubt is pervasive and we struggle with doubts. We struggle with what he called double-mindedness. In other words, you're, you're being pulled this way and this way and that way. And who doesn't struggle with double-mindedness? And societal status, he talks about The low need to be exalted and the rich need to humble themselves. Why? Because of the brevity of life, the fragility of life. We're like a flower, like a a blade of grass that's here today and gone tomorrow. When you're young, you look ahead and you think, oh, I've got all the time in the world. And when you're old, you look around and you go, wow, I don't have much time left. Everything starts to collapse. As you age or visit a doctor, maybe you're 18 years old and you go to the doctor and they say, I got bad news for you. Everything changes. Our life is brief. People hear the truth, but then they don't do it, James says. They have a dead faith rather than a living faith. Our actions don't often correspond to what we say we believe. We We say we believe certain things, but then we act completely different. 
There's a challenge with our speech ethics. How we use our words, our tongue, how we talk to one another. What we do with our words. We show partiality. We have passions, James says, that are pulling us in all kinds of directions. In fact, sometimes the passions will actually take you captive and enslave, enslave you. We live with a certain degree of presumption. We think that we have control over our lives and we can just say, I'll go here and I'll build this and I'll do that. We don't think about God and His will. We're very presumptuous. And there's a lot of deceitfulness in the world around us. You know, I was listening yesterday to a TED Talk and they were talking about, and this is, this is long before COVID came, about the erosion of truth. Not truth in propositional truth, but the fact that you cannot trust anything you hear today. Now, there are old, some of us are old enough, you remember, you could believe what you heard on the news. You cannot believe it now. You can't believe a lot of what the commentators say. You can't believe a lot of what the government itself says because they have politicized things to the point because they're so self-serving. That truth doesn't matter as long as I can control you. Churches are guilty of doing that. Truth doesn't matter as long as we can control you and get your money. And the erosion of truth is very dangerous. Where are you going to go when you no longer can believe anything that you hear? The deceitfulness of this world. The deceitfulness of power of riches, and on and on it goes. You need patient endurance because we are living in the already, not yet, of the wilderness. We're not, we're not there yet. You're not where you are meant to be yet. And neither am I, neither is our world. But we are in it, and he's telling us to have patient endurance as you wander. Because there is truth. And we are called. The reason He left you here, the reason that you're here today, is so that you can share the truth with someone else that needs to know that when they can't trust what they're hearing on TV, they can trust you. They can trust you to tell them the truth. That no matter who gets elected, you're going to be okay. No matter if the Ottoman Turks take over this part of the world and start killing every Christian they can find, you're going to be okay. No matter what happens to the economy, God will take care of you. No matter what the doctor says, you will be all right. You may die, but you'll be all right. You may live in poverty, but you'll be all right. You may live lonely in a prison cell, but you'll be all right. You may be hanging naked on a cross, but you will still be able to say, into your hands I commit my spirit. You'll still have that center point of truth in your life that holds you in place. And that's why James is very concerned about Christians who wander from the truth. If we wander from the truth, we are in a wilderness where we will die. And he goes on to say uh, that the wilderness 
that you're in is the wilderness of sin and death. Look at uh, verse 20. He says, if you sin, your soul is in danger. Now, he uses an interesting word word in Greek, uh, and many of you have heard that we have a, a, a cognitive word in English, psyche, the psyche, the soul. And this word means, the reason he chose this word, probably because it's not just your body that's in danger, all of you is in danger. You see, if you just die, and and many people believe this, and, and it's okay, I mean, I understand why we believe this, but if you just die, and you go into the ground, and that's the end, and there's no more you, then yet really you have nothing to worry about. Just die and go. But that also means that right now, while you're living, if that's your view of life, is I'm just going to die and go into the ground, then you have to start wrestling, if you're honest, with what does anything I do here mean? Why is sin and death so prevalent in our thinking, in our minds? Why do we think about it almost every day? You don't have to be a Christian to understand sin. Everybody on the earth understands sin. Everybody on the earth understands death. No one has ever come back from the dead except for one person. Nobody. Even Lazarus, he came back from the dead, but then he died again. You know? I mean, only Jesus is living today who was once dead. Now I'm alive, he said. Amazing. Sin is life Threatening, and this is why James is making such a big deal about it. This is why the Bible talks about you cannot just uh, pretend that sin is not a thing and that death is not the, the uh, consequence of that sin. And if you're in the wilderness and you're wandering and you're wondering, what am I going to do with my life? James is saying, you, those of you that do understand this, go rescue that person. They're lost, they're in the wilderness. Death is encroaching on them. Sin has got them bound in chains. Even if they were once a Christian and they have wandered away somehow, we've got to rescue them. We've got to go back in. You see, there's, James has already talked a great deal about a living faith versus a dead faith. And it is possible to talk like a believer and not be a believer. It's also possible to be a believer and not act like a believer. And there are a lot of other combinations. We don't have time to give them all. But the fact of the matter is that these things are true and you can wander from the truth. And James says this threatens your very life. Now, raises the question, you mean I can lose my salvation? Well, that's a whole other sermon. But I will say this. James isn't talking about losing your salvation. He's saying that sin will lead you to death. Which is a fact. And so we don't need to get into the theological weeds of whether or not it's possible. You will die. Therefore, treat it like it's real. You know, if somebody comes into a bank, you know, you go in a bank and... And a a guy has a trench coat on, and he pulls the trench coat up, and he's got his finger in the pocket of the trench coat. But he's pointing it at the banker and says, give me all your dough. What do you do? You give him all your dough. Because for all you know, he's got a gun in his pocket. 
You don't really know. And sin is threatening like that. You can't, you can't fool around with it. It's real as rain. And so faith is not going to take sin. And this is a problem we've had in every age, but it's certainly prevalent in our world today. We want to take sin and we want to rationalize it. We want to redefine it and say some things are not sinful that the Bible clearly says are sinful. So we redefine, we rationalize, we say, well, you know, I can't help it or, or this has got to be okay because of this extenuating circumstance. And so we go into all kinds of, of gymnastics and twisting why something that's wrong is okay. Or we will just excuse it and say, you know, that wasn't so bad. It really didn't hurt anybody. It's just, you know, this is why libertarian, if you are attracted to libertarianism, there's, there's something wrong with your Christian thinking. Libertarianism is a political thought that as long as you don't hurt anybody else, you should be free to do whatever you want. And that would be fine if you lived on your own planet with nobody else. But that's not where you live. You live in a world with other people. And so we are always called to be mindful of how our actions are affecting other people around us. And that happens all along the political spectrum. Whether you're a conservative or whether you're a liberal, our actions are always affecting people all around us. You just simply can't isolate yourself and say that what you believe and do and think and act doesn't matter. Sin is not going to let that happen. No matter how good your intentions are, well, I won't bother anybody. I'll just do this thing over here and won't hurt anybody and all that. The logic is irrefutable that it will hurt someone, somewhere, somehow. Not only that, every person has to come to grips with the the idea that even if you were all the, even if you're the only person that existed on the planet, you are not free to do anything you want. Why not? Because there's a holy God out here that is saying to you, you live in my presence and you do as I say. And so whatever you're doing that you think, well, it's not hurting anybody, you are still liable to answer to Him. Wandering from the truth in the wilderness of sin and death. Politics, no no kind of politics will answer that problem. When you come to sin, when you come to death, James along with everybody else in the Bible, you know, he heard heard his, his brother Jesus say these words, repent, believe the gospel. Follow me. And if Jesus isn't, if the gospel is true and Jesus is indeed King and Lord, then he, then you are no longer free. Do you all understand that? You're not free. You have a King and a Lord who you are obligated to obey in everything that He requires. And the reason that we're obligated to obey and everything that He requires is because He gave His entire life for us. 
And you can't simply pass that off. That's why a few weeks ago I said, I asked you, do black lives matter? Yes. Do all lives matter? Yes. Do blue lives matter? Yes. Do LGBTQ lives matter? Yes. Everybody's life matters. You're just making a naked assertion. You're saying nothing to the world around you that's drowning in the wilderness of sin and death. You're not saying anything. You're just shouting slogans at one another to no purpose. So stop that. And ask this question. Why does anybody's life matter? Anybody. Any human being. You or LGBTQ or XYZ or whatever it is. Why does anyone's life matter? And at the end of the day, only Christianity has an answer to that question. Only Christianity. And the answer to that question, my friends, please listen. Why? You are charged by James to go into the wilderness and rescue the least, the last, and the lost. The reason why lives matter is because Jesus Christ went on a cross for you. Became a human being for you. He didn't just stay up in the celestial realm and and throw down commandments in you and say, climb your way up here to me by your good work and by your effort. No, He became a human being. And that's why lives matter. Every life matters. And why sin cannot be excused, cannot be redefined. You can't just wish it away because you will face death someday. And you will have to answer for yourself. And if you go into God's presence and you tell Him, you know, I was a pretty good person and I obeyed the Ten Commandments. I did the best I could. I tried really hard. I was really sincere. I mean, look at, look at my life. Is it really that bad? And God's going to look at it and He's going to say, you know, I, I, I get all that. But look here. Look at my masterpiece. Look at the beauty and the glory and the, the splendid, what John Calvin called the splendid theater that God displayed to the whole world was on the cross. And you have the temerity to come into God's presence and say, look at mine. Look at my little scribbles, my little drawing. When the Mona Lisa is up there on the wall, we're in the wilderness, folks, and God has called us to save people, call them, recall them to life from death. And so sin is serious. But we're also called to have deep compassion. Why? Because you too are a sinner. You too are lost. And if someone hadn't come from somewhere and rescued you, where would you be? You'd be lost in your sin and death. You'd be lost in the wilderness. And you'd wander until you die. And so what is the way back? You know, James finishes his letter. It's kind of weird. Some scholars don't like the way James ends. And uh, I, I like the way it ends. And I, I see the reasons why he ended it the way he did. But some scholars think he just, you know, it's just too blunt. These last two verses are just not 
but I don't see it that way, and, and a lot of really good scholars don't see it that way either, and those are the ones that I'm, I'm, I'm referring you to as well. What is the way back? James very clearly and very succinctly describes the truth about two things. One is forgiveness of sin, and the other one is salvation. He mentions both. You save the sinner, and you cover a a multitude or many sins. You cover them. You do something with them and to them. The truth about forgiveness and salvation. What Forgiveness for what? What exactly are you being forgiven for? Why do we even need forgiveness? What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is for sin. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. But, and that's good. That's fine for a catechism. But there's more to sin than just breaking the law because there was a whole age and age and age of the world before there was any law. And so Paul, the apostle, brilliantly traces back sin to the, the, the pri- prior to the flood. He traces it back to the heart of man. And what he says is that our hearts are so construed now in our sinfulness that we take the truth and we suppress it like a spring. You know, you have a spring, and and in order to compress the spring, you have to put a load on the spring. And he uses the word in Greek of, of suppressing the truth. And while you're exerting all of your effort, all of your strength, to hold down that truth, because the truth is powerful, it's a spring, it will, if you don't hold it down, it's going to just explode in your face, so you're holding it down with all your might, and while you're doing that, and doing all kinds of gymnastics and contortions to hold the truth down, you reach out with your other hand and you grab a lie. And you replace the truth with a lie. You don't just suppress the truth. You do the ultimate. We do the ultimate. We go get something else and bring it in. And that's the nature of sin. It's called throughout the Bible, idolatry. It's bringing something else into the relationship that you have with God and saying this thing is, it's the cosmic thing in my life. It's the most important thing in my life. Forgiveness from what? From that. From that passion, as James called it, and our heart, that epithumia, that over-desire for other things, and they don't often replace God, they just come in and get in His room with Him. And God said, I will have no other gods before me in my presence, in my face, where I can see them. I don't want to look at them, so you keep them out there. Don't you bring them into the Holy Land. You see, nothing. And what is the truth about salvation? What are you saved from? You know, I remember uh, the, I, I was privileged to have R.C. Sproul as, as a teacher, a mentor, uh, a professor at seminary. And I can remember, like it was yesterday, the first time R.C. Sproul 
asked a group of people, and I was one of them sitting there listening, and he said, what do you think you're saved from? What do you think you're saved from? You're not supposed to answer like that. No, Scott's right. We would normally say, I've been saved from my sins. No, you're not saved from your sins. You're saved from God's wrath. He's got to... Sin is like, it's like this. Look, I had a professor, Mike Glodo, in uh, uh, seminary, good friend, became a good friend. And his wife, Vicki, had a set of china that went back several generations in her family. And they had a student from seminary come to have lunch with them. And so she took out her best china and she put it out for the seminary student. And he took one of the, they were irreplaceable Cannot, they were made hundreds of years ago and were irreplaceable. There were no, not replacements.com where you can go get replacement. There was nothing like that. All right, you couldn't get it. And this poor seminary student dropped one of the cups and broke it. And he was mortified. And she went, ah, and Mike went, ah. You know, I mean, it was awful. And the seminary student was just shattered. He said, please, let me pay for let me help. Let me do something. I've got to this. What can I do? And Vicky said, "There's nothing you can do. It's okay. I forgive you. I forgive you." Now, what did Vicky do? Did she just say, "Oh, Ali, Ali, oxen free, no problem"? No. Vicky paid. All of the emotional. Attachment, all of the, the, the currency that went along with that cup. Vicky chose to pay that in exchange for the, the trauma this young man was going through. Think about what happens when you look around and maybe you've had your house broken into or you've had your car taken or you've had some, some terrible tragedy has happened in your life. Someone has come in and murdered a family member and you want what? You want justice. And nothing will do until that person, somebody has to pay. The truth about forgiveness is sin. The truth about salvation is we're saved from the judgment, from the wrath of God. Who is going to pay for what we've done? And if you're not going to redefine and say, well, what I've done is not that bad. It's not, you know, I'm a pretty good person and you try. You're still in trouble. Who's going to pay? And this is where I think James is so brilliant because in the back of James' mind, like in the back of your mind, in the back of my mind, I hope, is what I first told you, that the truth is not a list of propositions. The truth is an embodiment of a person. No different than that beautiful person who walked in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden to spend time with Adam and Eve, with his creatures that he loved so fully and completely, that truth that was in the garden with Adam and Eve, that truth became a baby in a manger, and that truth became a man, and that truth went on to a cross. And that is the truth He is calling you and I to proclaim to the world and to call people back to. 
to a person. All of the propositions are there simply to describe and uphold the beauty and the glory of that person. But if you didn't have the person, the propositions would be empty and meaningless. Right? They would have no substance. Jesus is the substance of God's truth incarnated in a person. And God does not, never has, and never will forgive you or me or anyone simply by fiat. By fiat means by decree. And just saying, I hereby forgive and nobody pays. When the king says, hereby I forgive, who pays? If the king holds back a a sentence, who pays? The king pays. He decides, I will take the, the, the burden on myself for whatever it is, if it's a teacup or it's all the sins of this world, this, this sad, wandering, wilderness world, I'll take those sins and I will pay the debt so that both justice and love can be upheld. Sin demands justice. And justice demands that the infraction, the sin, be paid for somehow. Someone has to pay. And because you and I don't have the currency, we don't have the right currency, and we don't have enough of it. If we had it, we wouldn't have enough of it. And James is saying we have got to find the one who does the truth. Jesus Christ. He will pay. And He has paid. I don't like to go a whole year without quoting one of my favorite Scottish Presbyterian preachers who I think, if you're not a a Scottish person, that's fine, I'm not. Uh, And you can't help that. But you can help whether or not you're Presbyterian. Uh, Never mind. Anyway, this guy is great, James Stewart. Uh, His writing is is beyond, beyond belief. It is a glorious phrase, he led captivity captive, the very triumphs of his foes, it means. He used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his ends, not theirs. They nailed him to a tree, not knowing that by that very act they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates in the garbage to die, not knowing that in that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishable into the hearts of men and women, the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had God with His back to the wall. But it was God Himself that had tracked them down. He came to find us, to rescue us. 
He did not conquer in spite. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. The cross is the answer to justice and mercy and love. And that is what we're called to. Will you trust Him? Will you call people to trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your goodness and mercy in Jesus Christ, who is Himself the embodiment of all truth. And as we call others to return to Him, as we ourselves uh, flounder sometimes in our sin and our rebellion and our selfishness, we pray that You will send someone by the power of Your Spirit to recall us to life, to bring us back from our wandering ways into the wilderness. Father, I pray that every heart here today and those listening uh, on live stream will return to You. Repent. Believe the Gospel that Jesus Christ is King and that our King went to the cross for us. And then follow Him. Follow Him anew. Help us. Save us. And have mercy on us, O God, according to Your grace. Amen.